easy to tell by the accent that I don't have, but I grew up in the South. And unlike a lot of people in the South, I actually was not born in a church, which is a common statement you might receive if you ask someone in the Bible Belt, how long have you been a Christian? I was born here. I'm not like that. I actually came to the Lord uh, later on in life. So I have a little, uh, I'm gonna take you on a little bit of a, a time hop with me going down memory lane. When I was in college, I was in a fraternity. I was actually the president of a fraternity. If you can imagine that, but can you throw that first picture? Look at that guy. I actually went through um, this is like a last minute ad. It's like, yeah, okay, I think I can do it. I went through my pictures this morning and I was like, nope, nope, nope. Absolutely, I probably should delete that. This is me, probably 2002, having the time of my life with like a hundred guys. They're like my best friends. Thought I was living it up, living the dream. I mean, I got a tuxedo on and everything. Also, that's me without a beard. <laughs> you go to the next picture. That's 2011. Usually you save the emotion for the end of the sermon. <laughs> Down the left. It's my pastor, Adam, and the guy on the right is Harvey. Remember that homeless guy I told you about? That's him. Do you know what happened between the first picture and the second picture? Say it again. Jesus. I encountered Christ. Go on. You'll never be able to convince me that adults shouldn't get baptized because that. Because I got to stand up in front of people and declare I have encountered Jesus. my greatest hope that you do as well. So we've been in this sermon series, Encountering Christ, and we talked about Nicodemus and the woman at the well, and 
today I have the privilege of talking to you about John 5, which is this nameless guy who gets healed by Jesus. In chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. And then he tells people to eat his flesh and drink his blood. So you have the woman at the well. And then you have this nameless guy. And then you have another well-known miracle on the other side of that. In the middle is this story about this guy. And I, I have to admit that I've, I've skipped over it. Um, so that I haven't read it before, but it just hasn't landed like it's landed for me in this past couple weeks. But here's the thing that John is after in John chapter 5. So the guy's nameless for a reason. It's because the story's not about him. The story is also not a prescription of how you can meet and be healed by the Lord. It's actually a story about Jesus and the authority that he carries as the Son of God. And how he is demonstrating that to the, to the eyes that are willing to look at him in the moment. That's what John chapter 5 is all about. In the section that we read today, he only says four sentences. And yet they're some of the most powerful sentences that we could read. And yet they're just easy to blow by and get on to the next part. Today we're going to take some time to look at those sentences. And my hope is that... In these four sentences, we will have a better understanding of who Jesus is and where his ultimate authority comes from. So I'm going to take a moment. I'm going to read to you uh, John chapter 5. We're going to be focused on starting in verse 1. After this, there was a feast. The Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called, called Bethsaida, which has five roof colonnades. In those lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there already a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another one steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. 
Now that day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, Is the Sabbath man? You can't be doing that. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was a Jesus who healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them in reply to the Pharisees. He says, my father is working until now and I am working. The authority in this man's life for 38 years was his illness. It informed him what he was going to do that day, how he was going to live his life. Everything that he could accomplish was submitted to his illness. Until he met Jesus. And Jesus shows up and says, you're going to have a new demonstration of what real authority looks like. The four things that Jesus says in this passage. First thing is this. He says, do you want to be healed? If you and I ever go on a mission trip and we encounter someone who is lame, someone who has something and you say, do you want to be healed? I probably will never go on a mission trip with you again. Of course they want to be healed, right? Who doesn't? Who in this room doesn't have something that they want to be healed from? I, I bet every person in here has something. And yet Jesus shows up and what he does is he says, I am the authority as a physician over you to heal you. Jesus' words, this question actually fall flat unless we look at the other context of what's happening in the story and how he's interacting with him. What's happening is Jesus shows up and he's asking, do you want to be healed? Is it actually working out that the strategy you have to be healed will actually heal you? That's really what he's after. Is your plan going to work? Is essential oils gonna cure that thing? I know some people love essential oils and I'm not use them, but is that pill actually going to help you? Is it going to save you or is it going to give you a list of problems in addition to helping you with this one thing? 
38 years he sits there. And he is quite literally clinging to the earth in front of a pool. So his first strategy, his number one strategy is the pool. And the text tells us that this pool has some faults. Namely, it's probably just a myth that this pool can heal anything. But he believes that if he can get into this pool at the right time, when it's stirred by an angel that he can't see, he might be healed. So the efficacy of the pool is based on when it's stirred, and it's also limited in how many people it can heal because he says, people get there when it's stirred before me, and I miss the opportunity. What he's actually saying is, the prescribed plan of my strategy is very narrow. It's a little bullseye that I'm trying to hit perfectly every time, every day. This is my goal. And Jesus comes along and says, are you tired of doing that? second strategy that this man has. He says to Jesus, after he poses the question, he says, there's no one here to help me. None of these people are willing to help me meet my goal. Do you realize who he's asking to help him? He's looking around. Who's surrounding the man? A bunch of broken people. It's his second strategy. He's looking around and saying, why can't you blind, paralytic, lame people help me achieve my goal? That's not a great plan. And yet, there's so often when I, you hear young married couples, this is, this is also me, not necessarily when I'm married, Maranatha, but in my goals to be married in life. If I could just meet a good woman, then I'll, my problems will be over. Anytime you take two sinful people and you put them together, what happens? You don't decrease the amount of sin. You increase it, at least doubling it. And then you realize when you get married how selfish you really are. And then you have a kid and you realize, oh, there's actually more selfishness in me somehow. This man is looking around saying, hey, uh, can you guys help me? Oh, you're trying to help yourself. That's the problem. Third strategy this man has. Don't be easy. Is elbow grease. Do you get it? Elbow grease is a synonym for trying harder, and yet this man is... He's literally using his elbows and to get into the pool on time. He says to Jesus, I'm trying my best here, but people just keep going ahead of me. I can't quite get there. You realize that everything this man has said to Jesus demonstrates a person who lives under the law? saying, I'm, I'm trying my best to get this right, and I just can't. But with this insanely intense effort 
I'd try every day to be good enough to get there. Then Jesus shows up. Romans 8, verse 3 and 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This pool, Bethesda, the five-roof colonnade was this man's tomb. It was his grave. It would never produce life. Never. No matter how much he tried, the strategy would always fail. And that's because his strategy was not one thing and one thing alone. The only strategy for proper healing, for a physician to heal what's happening in us, is Christ and Christ alone. Nothing else can be added to that. No amount of your effort. We will never experience true healing if Christ is not our sole physician. There's nothing that can be added to the equation. It's not Jesus plus your effort equals salvation. It's Jesus plus nothing. So Jesus demonstrates his authority as a physician, and then he demonstrates his authority over creation. He is the creator, and he says to the man, in verse 8, Get up, take your bed, and walk. Three things he says to the man. Stand up. Standing in Scripture is not a physical position. It's not just a physical position. It is a spiritual position. Psalm 76, 7 says, You alone are to be feared. When you are angry, who can stand before you? Who can stand before the living Almighty God? The only person in Scripture who is able to stand before the Father, enthroned in heaven, is Jesus and those who are covered in his blood, the righteous ones, the ones who possess his righteousness. You understand that you are created in Christ's image, meant to bear that image, and so you are meant to stand in righteousness. And yet this man, for 38 years, has done nothing but cling to the earth. Do you know who that more closely resembles than Christ? Satan. Satan's curse is to what? 
You have no legs or feet to move about. You will go around on your belly, slithering in the dirt. Paul, paraphrasing Isaiah, says in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Stand up. Jesus is speaking as the one who John in chapter 1 declares, through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made. Jesus is stepping into this man's tomb and restoring his image to be just like him. And he says, okay, now that you're on your feet, I want you to pick up your mat Roll that thing up because you don't belong here anymore. This place, this place that will never produce life in you, is not your home anymore. And so he rolls up his mat, and through carrying the burden of picking this up, he demonstrates to himself and those around him that the power of God is at work in his life to not only stand, but to carry. John 14, 2 through 4 says, I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Because he is the way and the truth and the life. So Jesus is saying, look, man, you can't stay here. We've got to let go of the strategy and move on to something else. Then he says, follow me, walk, walk this way, stand up, take your mat, because we're not coming back here, and now walk. It's Eden language, it's restoration language. It's him saying, this is who I created you to be, one who is with me. Psalms 84. 1 through 2 and 7 says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the course of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for the living God. They go from strength to strength, each one who appears before God in Zion. It's appropriate to quote Philippians 4.13 here. It says, I can do all things with Christ. A moment ago, I was stuck to the ground with a strategy that was never going to work. And now that I've met you, now I'm standing, I'm picking up my mat, and I'm walking, walking after you, having communion with you. This moment is supposed to be a moment that is momentous, an incredible moment of God's healing power on display for everyone to see. And so he starts to walk and Jesus slides back into the crowd because he doesn't, he's not trying to be prideful. He's not trying to say, hey, look at me and look at what I can do. So the man goes, as he's carrying his mat, the 
Pharisees look on him and say, hey, bud, you can't do that. Where's that in the rule book? You can't carry some straw on a Sunday. He says, the man with the authority said I could. <laughs> Who are you guys? Proverbs 9, 6 says, Abandon your foolishness and live and proceed in the way of understanding. This next statement is true of me, and I'm sure it's true of many of us. This time for us to change the narrative of whose we are and walk in righteous victory, leaving behind worthless ways, worthless strategies that will never produce life in us. So Jesus shows up to this man and he says, I'm a healer, I'm your creator. And then he says, I'm the ruler over eternity. Jesus is, is the authority over eternity. So here's this man who's laid on the, on the ground for 38 years, having a hope just to walk again. Where's he going to go when he can walk again? The text says that Jesus finds him in the temple. That's a pretty great place to go, I would say. I have my freedom. I have nothing preventing me from coming into this place now, which likely would have been the, the Pharisees or the Levitical priests saying, hey man, uh, looks like you're pretty sick and you shouldn't be here probably. It doesn't say that specifically, but that's what I'm thinking. This guy is so eager to get into the presence of the Lord that all this stuff has prevented him from doing it. I can't even physically get there, but even if I could, I probably wouldn't be able to get in. So he, he comes to the temple and who meets him there? Jesus meets him there. And Jesus says to him, look at you walking and stuff. That's so great. Look at you, you're well, you're walking. Isn't this fantastic? It's a reason to celebrate. And he says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. What's worse than 38 years of laying on the ground? You know what's worse than that? What's worse than that is having an encounter with the living God and being healed, physically healed, and being spiritually deplete being spiritually empty, that's worse. That's far worse than any physical ailment that you could, you could experience right now. 
You've laid eyes on the Lord, and he's done something for you. And you say, I don't really need that. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 through 22 says, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse than, for them than the first for it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than after, than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment, delivering them to deliver it to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. What Jesus says to the man is, I'm really glad that you are here and that you are walking and that you're well, but there's more healing to be had. There's more life for me to give you. And I desperately want that. The only reason that I healed you is so that you would know this part. Don't go backwards. Don't go back to the old strategies. Don't bring the old strategies out of the tomb and expect them to produce life for you out here. What Jesus says is, I gave you a gift and I want to encourage you not to return to your broken strategy. As a Christian, how often do you need to be reminded of that? For me, it's almost daily. It's almost daily. It's not how often do you need to be reminded. It's when you are reminded, how quickly are you running to the cross again and saying, yes, I do desperately need you. Or, or does it so happen that you, you hear that again and you go, I think I'm gonna try a little bit harder. Chris, you guys wanna come up? Some of us in the room got stuck earlier in the story when Jesus showed up to the pool and healed one man, only one man, out of the multitude of invalids who were sitting there hoping to be healed. And right now you're saying, well, what about me? What do you do to heal me? I need that healing. In the last sentence of this section, Jesus says, my father is working until now and I am working. In saying that, what Jesus is saying is that he's revealing his authority, his real nature and his authority as equal to God. If you read the next verses, that's exactly what John says, is that Jesus is God.
The Pharisees are accusing him of breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you don't, you don't understand. If, if you're accusing me of breaking the Sabbath, then you misunderstand not only the Sabbath, but you also misunderstand the nature of God. Because it is the nature of God to bring healing and life everywhere he goes at all times. Jeremiah 23, 20, 23 and 24 says, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God, God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? God is omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient. He is everywhere, all-knowing, and all-powerful. For him to show up on the Sabbath and not heal someone, not heal his creation, would go against his very character. That's why he says in Luke chapter 14, he says, which of you whose son or ox falls into a pit on the Sabbath, do not immediately pull him out. You are God's children and he is ceaselessly at work trying to capture your heart and your attention so that you would know him and love him with everything you have. Not mixing strategies to find healing, to find hope anywhere else. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And apart from him, we'll never have it. Do you know what he did approximately two years later on the Sabbath? Come on, church. What do you do on the Sabbath? He rose from the dead. Is that not a work? You cannot come to this place and hear me say that Jesus put on flesh, climbed up on the cross, died, and was resurrected and ascended to heaven and not know that he's coming after you. He came for everyone in that pool. He's come for everyone in this church. He's come for everyone across the world. chapter, he says this, John 5, 25, truly, truly, I tell you, the hour is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear it will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so also he has granted the Son to have life given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not be amazed at this for the hour is coming when all who hear in their graves will hear his voice and come out. The cross is your encounter. cross is your encounter. The cross is Jesus coming after you to demonstrate that he's your physician, he's your creator, 
and he rules over eternity and is equal to God. So it's time, church, that if you haven't yet responded to giving every bit of yourself to the Lord, to letting go of every strategy just to do it, team in the back, there's communion, there's offering. Don't miss the moment. Go after him like he's coming after you with everything he's got, ceaselessly pursuing you. Let's worship. Come on, church. You guys hear that? Hear those footsteps? You know what that is? It's the hound of heaven coming after you to get all of you, to wallop you. There's a big slobbery tackle. Stop running. Stop running, turn around and meet him face to face, open arms. That's all I'm asking. It's worth it. He's worth it. We don't officially end at 1230, so if you can, stick around, say hello to someone, the Teardown team. If you don't know where your next meal is coming from, please see me or one of our team. Uh, we'd love to help you with that. God bless you. May he keep you. Have a wonderful week. See you next Sunday.